called his sermon, God's Promise of a Shepherd Ruler. And that certainly does come out in that passage as we read it together. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites." He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like a dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. Thanks, Carl. Well, it's uh, it's good to be back uh, here among you this morning and to be uh, bringing God's word to you. Uh, I thought... Uh, Before I begin, it might be helpful just to say a few words about the last couple of months. For those who are visiting this morning, I've been uh, away for some time uh, on leave. Um, For starters, I'd like to thank everybody for their uh, kindness and patience um, and understanding. Uh, And by way of explanation, uh, I think it might be helpful um, to say that I think that what I have experienced uh, is described by many people as burnout... Uh, although mercifully not as catastrophic as, um, as experienced by uh, other friends that I know. Uh, that has come about, I think, because over the last few years, after the last seven years, in fact, um, that I've been here at the branch, the shape of my role and the shape of the church has changed quite dramatically and faster, I think, than I uh, or anyone else expected, uh, to such an extent that what was sustainable is uh, not sustainable anymore. Uh, Two things, I think, have happened uh, without me realising, I suspect, or anyone else realising. That is, the number of the roles that I had has grown and the size of those individual roles has grown as well. Uh, uh, And and others were unable to adjust to those changes quickly enough. Uh, And the result was that the mountain of work uh, that needed to be done and the responsibility uh, that was resting on my shoulders grew uh, exponentially and um, quite suddenly, I think. Um, Attempts to hand things off to other people didn't really work or didn't solve the problem and the mountain only continued to grow faster and faster. More needed to be done and there didn't appear to be any way out of the problem. Uh, And in the end, it just became too much to bear. 
After a year of hoping that things would improve, it became clear that things were quickly unravelling uh, and that without dramatic intervention, they would completely unravel and there may uh, not be any way back. Uh, it's perhaps worth explaining, I think, that it's not just the amount of work that is the problem, um, but the nature of the work as well. Uh, the sense of responsibility that one feels for people and their spiritual well-being uh, as a pastor is almost impossible to describe, I think, unless you've been in that situation. Uh, I remember waking up a few months ago uh, and playing through my mind uh, all the people who'd left the church over seven years. Uh, some of those are your friends or your children or your brothers or sister or parents. And no matter how many times people tell you that you can't be responsible for everyone, it's hard not to feel as though you should have done more, uh, even if that was humanly impossible. Perhaps the most helpful thing that I read during my time away, uh, which gets, I think, to the heart of the problem, uh, was something by John Piper, who wrote... Everyone has to get up and make breakfast and wash clothes and go to work and pay bills and discipline children and generally keep life going when the heart is breaking. But it's different with pastors. Not totally different, but different. The heart is the instrument of our vocation. And it's very hard to keep going in a vocation where the heart is the instrument when the heart is the thing which is uh, broken. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm completely better. Um, I would say that I'm doing better and I have resigned myself to the fact that I may never recover this side of eternity, but God uh, is the only one who knows the answer to that question. Um, that's all I'll say on that. Um, please... Please don't ask me too much about how things are going. Um, I'd, I'd, I'm just very tired of telling the same story over and over again. Um, uh, if you want to say anything, you can say, I'm praying for you, or it's nice to see you back. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a Father who loves us. He loves us so much that you sent your Son into the world to die for us. Uh, to take us by the hand and to lead us uh, into glory. And Lord, we thank you that at this time of year we can remember that. And so, Lord, we ask that as we think about your prophecy of old, that you would send a shepherd to, to rescue your people, we pray that as we think about those words now from the book of Micah, that you would press the truths of that to our heart so that this Christmas would be a time not just of enjoyment with family, but a time of hope and of consolation and of optimism rather than fear for the future. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'm not sure uh, if you've ever realised it, but one of the most famous Christmas carols that we sing is not actually about Christmas. Does anyone know what Christmas carol that is? Jingle bells? Okay, Christian Christmas carols. It's not Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree either, it's not that one. Does anyone know there's one song that doesn't? Joy to the world, Jordan. 
Does anyone know what Joy to the World is about? The second coming. Wow. Power team over here in the third row. That's right. Listen to some of the words from that song. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Well, that could be Christmas, couldn't it? Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Well, that could be Christmas. But then listen to this. Joy to the earth, the saviour reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Maybe the first verse could be about Christmas, and that, I think, is why people have picked up on that song. But really, the the, the joy to the world is all about the second coming of Jesus. It's about the time when he comes as king to establish his rule once and for all over the world, when he comes again to destroy sin and sorrow, when he comes to rule the world with grace and truth. It might seem odd to us to sing at Christmas a song about the return of Jesus, but it makes sense really because the first coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus into our world, is just one bookend out of two which describes the whole mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus being born into the world was not just to be a cute baby, it was a mission to remake a broken world and his birth was just the beginning of that. And the words which we just read from Micah before are words which really focus our attention, not just on the birth of Jesus, that's there, but it focuses our attention on the full accomplishment of Jesus. And so what I want to do is try and paint that picture for you this morning using the four images that Micah uses to paint the picture as well. I want you to leave this morning with these four images in your head, four images that we don't usually associate with Christmas. They are the image of a siege, the image of a commander standing in a field with his people, the image of a field thick with dew and the image of a lion ravaging a flock of sheep. So the first image then is of a siege. Chapter 5 begins with this call to arms. The city is under siege. Verse 1, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. The setting for these events is very similar to what Graham described, if you were here last week when we were looking at Isaiah 9. Micah and Isaiah lived at about exactly the same time and prophesied at about the same time. But the events happening here in this chapter are a little bit later on from from, uh, Isaiah 7, 8 and 9. The year is about 701 BC. Uh, The northern tribes of Israel have been defeated. They've been conquered by the Assyrians. They've been taken off into exile. And Hezekiah is now the king in the south in the kind of the stump nation that's left Um, at the bottom of Israel. The Assyrian king at the time is Sennacherib, and in 2 Chronicles 32, we hear about how this Assyrian king Sennacherib came down and laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, Ultimately, the people of God were delivered uh, by him from uh, Sennacherib's siege, but the reprieve that was granted by God didn't actually last all that long. So only a hundred years later, in about five, um, uh, in about six hundred uh, BC, 
the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem again and eventually took control and deposed the last king of Judah. And from that time on, from uh, the time of Nebuchadnezzar, you might think of Daniel and, uh, and his friends, that was the time of Nebuchadnezzar. From the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the New Testament, until the birth of Jesus, was 600 years that the people of God were without a king. So what Micah is prophesying, what he's prophesying about, is this coming catastrophe. There's a siege, there's a defeat, and then there's abandonment. Look at verse 3. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers shall return to join the Israelites. There will be this long period without a king, until this new king is born sometime in the distant future. And the time that it would take was 600 years. 600 years God's people would be without a king. And yet, Micah says, that's part of God's plan. So if you look back into the end of the last chapter, into chapter 4, Micah says to the people, why do you cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. Writhe in agony, daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You're going to go into exile. You'll go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. The Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. They're going to be, go away. They're going to be in exile. They're going to come back. And then uh, verse 11, but now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. What God is saying is that the people will suffer without a king. They'll be trampled by Babylon and the nations will be gloating over them. The nations will be thinking, we're winning this battle. But Micah says, that's because they don't understand what God is doing. Verse 12, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his plan. That he has gathered his people like she- sorry, like that he's gathered them, sorry, the enemies, like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God will come back and rescue his people from exile. In order to understand what this whole pattern of siege, defeat and exile and then restoration, in order to understand what that means for us, it's important for us to see how the exile of Israel and Judah in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is really a picture of something bigger. Israel's story is a kind of a living illustration of the story of humanity. So Israel was given a land by God. They were expelled from the land and from the presence of God because of their sin, but God promised to bring them back, to bring back a remnant of his people. He promised to bring back those who uh, trusted uh, in him. In the same way, humanity was given a world by God, not just a land. We were exiled from the goodness of that world and from the presence of God because of our sin. But God has made a promise to bring us back, to bring back those who return to him and who trust in him. So the exile of Israel is just an illustration, a kind of a living illustration of the condition of humanity. A land 
exile, a promise, and a return. What that means in the overarching kind of narrative narrative or storyline of Scripture, what that means is that we are still, to some extent, in exile, waiting for the return to the promised land. We're not in the garden. We're still not in the garden from which we were expelled. So listen to how the Apostle Peter writes to one of the early churches. He says, Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. He says that they're exiles. These are the people of God. And he says that they're exiles. They belong to God but they're living under oppressive opposition of people who reject God. Think about it. The people that Peter was writing to, the the Christians in the first century, uh, were living under rulers like Nero uh, and other vicious Roman emperors who opposed Christianity. Uh, Nero, famously, when Rome burned down, blamed the Christians uh, and took out uh, his anger on them. And what was true for the people in Peter's day uh, is still true for us. Sure, we have a king, we have Jesus, we have this inheritance kept in heaven for us if we know Jesus, and that makes a world of difference. We'll see that uh, in a moment. But we still live in a world that resists God, that fights against God, uh, and a world that resists God's people and fights against God's people. We still live in a world where sin is prevalent where there's evil and injustice one of the most grotesque uh, but powerful images i think in the bible is in revelation chapter 12 Uh, the picture there is of a woman in labor about to give birth and standing over this woman about to give birth is a great dragon waiting to kind of devour the baby as uh, as the baby's born it's a hideous picture isn't it but the point of that picture is is that that woman is the people of God, ultimately finds expression in, uh, in Mary. Uh, the child is Jesus, the promised saviour of God, the promised king of God. And the dragon is Satan and, all, and ultimately all those who stand with him in opposition to God. And Satan is doing all that he can to destroy God's king Jesus, the moment that he comes to, uh, to, to save a people for himself. But Satan's attempts to kill the baby fail. And so what does he do? He spends all his remaining energy unleashing his anger, not on God, because he can't defeat God. He spends all his time and his energy and his anger on the people of God, waging war on them. And we don't have to look far in the world, I think, to see that fury at work. We see it in China with the rising opposition uh, again to Christianity, with the forced closure of churches, with pastors being thrown into prison. We see it in India where similar things are happening and increasing opposition to Christianity and the reinstatement of Hindu ideals. We see it more subtly, I think, in places like America with the deception that is the prosperity gospel, the message that uh, people are led to believe that God's plan for them is to make them filthy rich and 
if they're not filthy rich and healthy, then it's their fault. They don't have enough faith, or worse, they haven't given enough money to the churches who are peddling that lie. We see it in Australia, with the thumbscrews being turned even on Christians here. The pace at which the debate on religious freedoms has moved is astonishing. To the extent that in the final sitting week of Parliament just a few weeks ago, there was a bill before Parliament which could conceivably have stopped Christian schools from operating according to their religious convictions. And indeed, were so poorly drafted that could have even stopped churches from operating according to their religious convictions as well. Humanity is an exile from God. We've been cast out of the garden and the world is in a mess. And we're living in that. Even if we know Jesus and belong to him, we're living in that reality. If we know Jesus, we're in a better place. We have an inheritance that's promised to us by God. We have the hope of a world put right. And no one, no violence, no opposition can take that away from us. But we're still living here. And we're still waiting for that reality. We're still living in a broken world. We're still waiting for peace. So there's a siege. The next picture is a king standing among his people in victory. In verse 2, Micah says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. God is going to send the smallest, the smallest clan in Judah, he's going to send through them a king, a ruler who is from ancient times, from of old. At one level, that reference is most immediately to God's promise to David that had happened Hundreds of years before, God had promised David that he, one of his children would always sit on the throne uh, overseeing God's people. And Jesus was uh, the fulfillment of that promise. He was a, a, a man from the tribe of Judah. He is the king that the people had been waiting over 600 years for. He was the king that God had promised. He was the king from ancient times. For a king... Uh, from a promise of ancient times in a dynasty from ancient times. But at another level, the language of from ancient times pushes back even further than that. In the world of Micah, it would have been hard for them to understand what was going on, but this side of Jesus, it makes sense to us. That is, Jesus traces his ancestry back not only to the time of David, Jesus traces his ancestry back to before the beginning of the world. He traces his ancestry back, his life back, to eternity past. As the Apostle John writes at the beginning of his biography of Jesus' life, in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was there from the beginning, from ancient times. Because he is God. That idea 
is picked up again in Micah 5 verse 4 where God says that this king, this ruler, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This ruler will rule in the strength of God because he is God. He rules with the majesty of the name of God because that name is his name. But what will this ruler do? Well, Micah tells us he will stand, that is, he will endure forever. He will face every opposition. He will face every attack and put it down. What else will he do? He will shepherd his flock. He will protect them. This is not some kind of, you know, postcard or art gallery painting of the shepherd in the lush, you know, in the lush field with a few cute little sheep wandering around. This shepherd is a warrior standing in the middle of his sheep, protecting them, defeating the enemies. Look at verses 5 and 6. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with sword with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. War is coming. And this shepherd will stand and deliver his sheep. And he'll raise up others. Seven, even eight, even more commanders who will join in his protection and in his battle. In the first place, the victory in mind that Micah has in mind, that God has in mind, is the historical victory uh, that Israel, the Judah won over the Assyrian threat. Uh, but ultimately, the victory that God's shepherd warrior will win is over that enemy Satan that we saw in that picture in Revelation 12. The victory that Jesus will win is over Satan and over every person who stands against God and against his King Jesus and against his people. But key, I think, in this picture, this image that Micah gives us, is that this king, this shepherd king, is not a king who sits in the castle, you know, or in the command centre, in a bunker. You know, these days, generals sit in bunkers, you know, buried underground or well behind uh, all their forces out on the front. But this king is not a king like that, who sits off at a distance while the battle rages at the front. This is a king who stands among his people. And he stands among his people with the power and the majesty of God. That idea took on profound significance in the birth of Jesus. The God that we know in the Bible, that we know through Jesus, is not a God who stands far off in heaven, away from the violence and the evil and the injustice of our world. The God that we meet in the Bible and that we meet in the person of Jesus Christ is a God who has entered into the ignominy of our situation, into the misery of our condition. And standing there has rescued us. He stands to defeat the evil of Satan and of all who stand opposed to God. And he stands there to rescue us and to protect us and to, and to save us. That's a great encouragement, I think, 
Because that means that even as we're here today, Christ is standing with us. He's not here in person, but he's here in the person of the Holy Spirit. As we sit here in this church, Christ is with us. As we leave this building today, Christ is with us, standing among us, shepherding us, gathering us, protecting us. And no opposition, no enemy can come between us and Christ. No one can separate us from his love. Nothing in all creation, in heaven or on earth or under the earth, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God isn't far off in heaven, but he's standing among us, even now, protecting and guiding and shepherding and caring for us. So there's a siege and there's a warrior shepherd standing among his people. The final two pictures are pictures of victory, but two quite contrasting pictures of victory. The first of those images is a carpet of thick dew. So verse 7, the remnant of Jacob, Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The picture here is of God's people, the remnant, uh, spread among the nations, bringing blessing to those nations. They're a small number, they're just a remnant. Uh, they're in the midst of the peoples, they're scattered about. But they're like a dew and they're like showers on the grass. That is, they bring life where they are. Water is, as I'm sure you're aware, kind of the, one of the basic ingredients for life. Uh, it's one of the basic ingredients for the grass to grow and to be lush and green. And God says that his people are like that. They're like the dew that forms on the grass in the morning or like the showers that come to replenish a parched land. I remember when I was, a, when I was at school, we had this, uh, this sort of top sports field uh, at, the, at the sort of above um, the, the secondary school and you would go up there sometimes on the morning and it would just be, just be blanketed in this kind of thick dew, it would just be everywhere, you know, and the, there was always plenty of grass uh, on that oval, I always know, I know because I had to mow it, that was my job, uh, and it grew far too quickly. But, that, but that's true, isn't it? You, you know that kind of picture of, uh, of this dew, which is replenishing, uh, refreshing the land. Uh, you might know about the place in Chile, uh, the Atacama Desert, it's the driest place on earth. It, earth, it's so dry, in fact, uh, that parts of it can go without rain for 50 years. It's extraordinary, isn't it? 50 years without rain. But even though there's no rain, uh, things live there. That's because sweeping off the ocean are these banks of fog which pass through uh, on a regular basis. And as the fog is swept inland, dew condenses uh, on the plants and on the ground and enables these plants to grow and animals to live in this place that has virtually no rainfall. That's the effect that God's people have on the world about them. Although it's just a remnant, although it doesn't look much more than a cloud of fog, insubstantial, blown about by the wind... Although it's just a small group of people, through them, God is bringing great blessing to the world. Since the day that Jesus came, the gospel has been going out to the nations. There are people in exile 
who know there is a hope in Jesus Christ. And those people are telling others about the way back. Those people in exile are telling the others around them that there is a better country that God has promised, that there is a better inheritance, that there is a world that God has promised without injustice and without suffering and without misery and without evil. There are Christians who are in exile who are telling others that the God who made the heavens and the earth has left the glory of heaven, has entered into our world and stands as a shepherd among his sheep, gathering and leading his people back to that better place. There are Christians who are in exile, scattered throughout the world, who are telling others about the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of the God who made us and who calls us back to him. There are Christians in exile scattered throughout the world like dew on the ground, like showers in a field, bringing life and vitality to a perishing world. God's gospel is going out. People are being saved. The kingdom of God is growing from a tiny seed to fill the whole earth. It's not our power that's doing that. It's the power of God. Like dew and showers on the earth, Micah says, it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on any human being. God is doing it by his power and by the power of his shepherd, King Jesus. There's a siege There's a king standing among his people. There's a field thick with dew. And then there's a lion ravaging a flock. He says in verse 8, The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. Again, the people of God are small, they're a small number among the nations. Again, they will be saved. But this time, the image is not of life, of dew. The image is of a lion among the beasts of the forest and among the flock of sheep ravaging and destroying them. The picture is of victory over enemies. Uh, That's borne out in the next verse, in verse 9. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. The other side, Micah says, God says, of deliverance is defeat. You see, God's great plan is not for his people, for the world to live in exile for eternity. God's great plan is not for the world to live in injustice and evil, ravaged by sin and sickness and sadness for eternity. God's plan is to end the violence and the destruction and the hatred. One day, the warrior king will come again. And he will put down those who stand against him. He came once as a child in humility and grace and love to welcome a hurting world to know the love of God. He came once as a baby into our world so that he could take a people with him to be with God. But he will come again as a king, as a warrior, 
to put down evil and to destroy those who stand against him. There's only two places in the world to stand. With the king or without him. With the king or against him. For those who stand with Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from him. He stands among us and will take us to be with him. But for those who stand against Jesus, away from Jesus, for whatever reason, reason whether it's ignorance, whether it's uh, indolence, whether it's because they don't care, whether it's because they're actively opposed to him, whatever the reason. Those who stand away from Jesus will be destroyed. Like a lion ravaging a flock. Like a lion amongst the beasts of the forest. It doesn't have to be that way. God still stands with arms open wide, willing to receive all those who come to him through Jesus. But we have to make a choice. The choice actually is already made, even if we don't make one. We're already standing away from Jesus. We have to make the call to stand with him. As Jesus said, he came to bring not peace but the sword. That is, he came to divide the world into those who are with him and those who are against him. I don't know about you, but... As I watch the television at the end of the year, I see all these programs that give me a montage of all the news that's happened in the past 12 months. It's a pretty depressing picture, isn't it? And it's a picture that doesn't give me a lot of hope for the future. There's images that are enough to destroy uh, a person's optimism. Uh, And if I watch the news, I'm full of despair because the world in which we live is broken and people are hurting uh, and the political and even the military solutions that people are coming up with are not working and have never worked. But if I look at the manger and if I read Micah, I'm full of hope because I don't just see there a baby, but I see at the end of a siege, a victory. And I see amongst a host of hurting people, a warrior shepherd gathering and taking his people back. And in the midst of a parched world, I see refreshment and life, a field thick with the waters of heaven. And in the midst of a world captive to evil and justice, I see victory. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you know the condition of our world and the cost of sin and um, our opposition to you as human beings. And Lord, we live with the scars of that every day. Uh, And you know the the pain and the suffering that 
some here perhaps have experienced. Lord, you know the pain and suffering of many throughout the world. Those in hunger, those in misery, those uh, caught up in war, uh, those subject to corruption and uh, evil governments. Lord, you know the suffering. Uh, but Lord, we thank you so much that uh, at the end of the siege, there's, there's a victory. Uh, there's a, a better hope. Uh, thank you that Jesus has come into our world uh, to lead a people out of misery to uh, a better place, a better world, a world put right. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on that today and this Christmas and in the year ahead to remember that you've come to rescue us and to save us. Uh, Lord, strengthen our hope and our faith, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.